We're looking again to Exodus, and I would invite you to turn uh, to Exodus 22. We're going to cover two chapters tonight, or at least parts of of, um, two chapters. And let's take a look at that. Exodus 22. We've been talking about the, the book of the covenant, and we're still in that. It's kind of what comes right after the Ten Commandments, these laws and these stipulations, rules that helped kind of, I don't know, regulate life in this nation of Israel that is to be kind of this theocracy. Uh, That's how it's different from uh, the nation that we live in today. But this, uh, the Israelites were to be a people, a nation set apart to God. And so, uh, since they are His particular people, God has the right to tell them what life is supposed to look like and to give them handles and guardrails against uh, the sin that, uh, that infects us all. And so in chapter 21, we learned about these, these general and case laws. Some laws are general. They're, they're very broad. This is what you do generally. And then there are these case laws. If this happens, or in case this happens, here's what you should do. So we learned about that. Here we see a little bit more, but beneath them, beneath these laws and, and rules, is, is a description of God's character. So we've got to kind of look through them to see what God is presenting, or how God is presenting Himself. What character traits of Him can we kind of learn from uh, these passages that in our Bible reading plans throughout the year might otherwise seem a little uh, confusing or, if we're honest, maybe a little dry. Um, so, from these verses, there are generally kind of three kinds of principles and laws that are conveyed, but lo and behold, I've only put down two of them. So, we'll only get to two of them tonight. But the first one has to do with responsibility and restitution responsibility and restitution. In other words, when you sin against somebody, it's frequent or it's a common thing that sometimes you need to not only say I'm sorry, not only ask God for forgiveness, but also to make restitution for the things that you may have taken from from them. And we see that here in um, in Exodus. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 at how this played out. Uh, Exodus 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, this is interesting, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So, let's see what we might be able to learn from these first four verses. We see a difference in penalty for different kinds of violations, for different kinds of crimes. Not all crimes are the same, right? And I would say to you, we have to be very careful about how we even speak today about our sins. It is very common to hear people say in just a very kind of flattened out way, all sin is the same, right? 
You've perhaps heard that. That is true, but incomplete, right? It's true on one hand that all sin condemns us before God, right? Uh, A lie is heinous before God, just as adultery is heinous before God. But all sin is not the same in terms of the consequences, Different sins carry with them different kinds of consequences, and some sins in the Scriptures are spoken of as only coming from a conscience and a heart that has been so seared and deadened to God's activity that only when, when our hearts and our consciences are seared could we ever venture into a certain kind of sin, if that makes sense. So we have to be very careful uh, um, about, about these things and speak... Um, carefully about them. Um, Here we see, uh, if a thief is killed during the night, there is one set of consequences. But if he is killed during the day, there is another set. In other words, you can imagine a scenario where you're asleep in your house in the dead of night, and someone breaks in. Well, you know, friends, I, I really hope this never happens to me. But you can imagine what you might have to do in order to defend yourself and your family in the middle of the night when you don't know the intention of the person who's broken into your house. You don't know if they're looking for a little money or if they're looking to do something to you and your family. Um, and so in the, in the darkness of night, when intentions are unclear, uh, you know, there, there's this, this difference in how the man is punished if he kills this intruder than there is in the daytime. If it's broad daylight and you see someone, you know, taking off with a piece of equipment from, you know, from, you know, your property or something like that, it would probably be a bad idea to shoot him in the back, right? Because you can see what's happening is a different scenario. And this is kind of what's being brought out here um, about the difference between when you can understand someone's intention and what's going on and when you can't, the difference between night and day. Uh, The sense is that the homeowner should have been able to better discern the intentions of the thief in the day than he would have in the middle of the night. There's also a higher payment made for theft. I don't know if you noticed this, but the payment for one ox being stolen is not one ox being replaced because you can imagine what what it would do in this particular culture Uh, If an ox is stolen, if an ox is stolen, you could lose the ox and also perhaps a few days of labor out in the field. You could lose more than just what the ox himself was worth. And so uh, you can see why some of these things are are stipulated or are, uh, I don't know, outlined the way that they are. Um, there's more than just a one-for-one restitution must be made in some of these. Due sometimes even to the intention behind the act. Uh, and this demonstrates underneath all these laws and getting into all the weeds that we're trying to sift through, God is concerned with the heart, right? God is concerned with the intention. Uh, a thief is different you know, if uh, it would be different for someone to steal an ox than it would be to accidentally to accidentally kill the ox, right? There's a difference in intention between those, those two things. Uh, our culture today understands this as the, di- as the difference between you know, first-degree murder and involuntary manslaughter. You know, the difference of intention uh, affects the kind of, of punishment for the crime. Let's look in verses 5 and 6. We see kind of this negligence, negligence thing being brought into view again. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over, 
or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain on the standing or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. You know, I'm in the fire department here in town, and I was asking, um, I was actually talking with, with Todd Shackelford about this. I was like, you know, I'm in town all day. I'm available. I'm very close. I may end up, if a fire in a, in a field, you know, during wheat harvest or, what, or whatever, if a fire call comes in, and I get to the truck first, what do you want me to do? What, sh- what should I do when I show up? I said, should I put the combine out first, or should I put the field out first? You know, and he said, well, you know, there's different situations, and you might want to do one thing or another depending on how everything looks, but if you can, put the field out. You know, combine's insured, and the field, it might, it might burn into my neighbor's field. It might burn into somebody else's, and then who knows how much money there is standing out in the field, and the combine is worth what it's worth, and it's insured, and so this is kind of talking about a little bit of the same thing. A fire breaks out, and the person who's responsible for it is, you know, is um, if he was negligent, that even kind of ups the ante. If he was negligent, if, if a man causes a field to be grazed over, in other words, if he just lets his animals roam free. He's negligent, and, and, um, and that causes his neighbor, supposed to love our neighbors, his neighbor loses, uh, in, in endures some kind of loss because of my negligence. Well, I need to pay some restitution to him to restore what was lost. Uh, and then again, we see in verses 7 through 9, the, the issues of theft versus loss. Uh, says this in, in verse 7. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. So there's that double restitution. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. This is an interesting thing. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or a donkey, for a sheep or a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, The case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. Now, it's not exactly clear how this works out. But somehow, if you have ever read the Old Testament, God is definitely able to uh, punish the sinner. And so what is pictured here is if something is lost while it was under the care of another person, and the person says, I didn't steal it. I don't know how it got lost. The two people are to come before God, and God will, in this case, in in Old Testament Israel, God will somehow make it clear the guilt or innocence of the person who was accused. We don't know what that looks like. We know what it looked like with Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, right, when they, uh, when they held back and then lied about what they had given to God, and God struck them dead in that moment. Um, very uh, interesting thing. So the people of Israel, uh, I think, would, would very much know how serious of an offense and what God was able to do if they went before him and swore an oath before him. I did not steal that when they actually did. I think there would have been examples of what God uh, was able to do uh, to, to punish the liar if they made such an oath. Um, anyway, theft is such a personal and harmful practice that the penalties are high, though they are not capital. 
They're not capital here. Here's a few things that we learn. Where does this touch down? First of all, the sanctity of human life is in view again here. We know that from the last couple of weeks, but here we see it again. Certain punishments are capital. In other words, certain punishments bring, in Old Testament Israel, they were to bring the death penalty. But others are not. And this is how God shows that He is a little bit different from the nations. And He's a little bit different from the other little g gods of the other nations around them. In other cultures, the killing of an ox was capital. You killed an ox and you could go to the death penalty over this. Not so uh, in Israel. This demonstrates the difference between the taking of a human life and the taking of property in God's view. In God's view, life, human life, is deeply, deeply sacred. Um, Secondly, navigating life as a nation unto God is complicated. I think it's really, really complicated. When you get into all of these stipulations and all of these rules and all of these case laws, it is complicated. But God's level of detail here shows us His concern to be just. He shows us that He is a just God. He desires for the one who has been defrauded to be repaid. He desires for the one who has encountered loss to have it restored. So we see God's desire underneath all of these laws, and His desire is for justice. It's a part of His character. We can know today, what do we learn from this? We can trust Him that if He was such a stickler for details and for justice in Old Testament Israel, if He was so concerned about justice surrounding oxen, then we can trust Him to be just with us. We can trust Him to judge us justly. And it's good news because He will judge justly. It's good news for us that we are in Christ because He will by no means pardon the guilty. He will abundantly pardon sin in Christ, but He will by no means excuse the guilty. Here's the last thing that we learn. And this is where... The commentator that I read said this, and I think I kind of agree with him. I'm just going to put this to you, and we'll see how it sits. A restitution-based system may be a more faithful handling of some offenses instead of a punitive-based system. In our country, we, we have perhaps the, the highest, I think we do have the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world. Um, so the biblical picture here is that when possible... Let restitution be the way that you restore. In other words, the, the commentator that I read gave a, an actual personal story of a person, a, a, a few young men who had stolen from a person, and when they were caught, instead of sending them to an institution where they even become more institutionalized and around a bunch of other bad people that even further solidifies their path, they were made to work for this man for a period of time until they paid the debt off. So, you know, doesn't always work. Right? But perhaps that's uh, an interesting little biblical picture there. If we, can, uh, if we can get justice in a way that doesn't set people up um, to continue the patterns that got them in trouble in the first place. Anyway, just a, a little word there. Interesting how we might flesh that out. Who knows? It takes a lot of wisdom uh, that I don't have. But there's a principle of restitution there that is uh, maybe worth keeping in mind. Uh, here's what also we learn later in the chapter and into chapter 23 is that God cares for the other. God cares for the other. You would imagine or you might 
you might be tempted to think that God's concern is only for his people of Israel. And he plays favorites to them. And the rest of the nations uh, can just kick rocks, right? They can just pound sand. But God also is concerned for the other. He loves all mankind in a particular way. Um, And that is revealed. Let's look in verses 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So you can imagine, and of course I think this one still has to do with with Israel inside the community, but you can imagine um, what it would be like in this era where there's uh, there's no central air, you know, there's no heat pump. Uh, there's no, you know, any, anything like that, it would be very important to have your cloak at night, you know. And if it's 5 p.m. and your best friend comes and asks for it to go to town in or whatever, he needs to bring it back before it's sleep time because it's going to be an awfully cold night. And so the, uh, also this, this, this commentary related to uh, interest on loans, it shows us a principle of generosity, um, I would say this. This is how we'd flesh this out. If someone comes to you, I, I, I've, I've heard this before, and, and I don't think it's wrong to give a loan but uh, to, you know, today with stipulations. But I would say this. If you're able, if you're able and someone who, and someone who is another believer in Christ, church member, if they are in need, and this is a person who's not given to abuse generosity, I would say instead of giving a loan, if you're able and the Lord has blessed you, just give a gift. Because that way, if they become not able to repay it, there's never any hard feelings. You know, there's never any uh, bitterness that can crop up. Uh, I had the, the, the gentleman who's professor at RTS Charlotte uh, Seminary there who did my biblical counseling supervision. He gave a very large gift to a very close friend. Uh, 20, 25 years ago. I mean, he gave him, I believe it was upwards of twelve dollars or $13,000 to a friend who was really in need. And that friend promised he would pay it back. And the friend has never, has never paid it back. And so, in order to keep from bitterness in his heart, what he has said is, you know what, I, just, I finally had to get to the place where I just considered that a gift to him. And I'm probably never going to loan anyone money anymore because now the relationship's broken between these two, these two one-time good friends. He says, so what I'm going to do, because the Lord has blessed me, if someone comes to me in legitimate need, if I'm able, I'm just going to give that to them. Anyway, this is not an absolutely thus saith the Lord, you must do it this way, but it's a principle to think about. It's a principle because generosity among the people of God, instead of this miser-like, I don't know, I'm going to take advantage of you when you're down, I'm going to kick you and exact interest on you. This, this seems to be, at least for Old Testament Israel, not exactly how God wanted his people to relate to one another. So we would do well to understand how this relates to us today. How should we apply this same principle of generosity today? It takes some wisdom. It takes some wisdom.
Um, God cares for the poor and for the other. Look, look what he says here. If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. In other words, you can't ultimately keep things secret from God. And if you use another person's misfortune to take advantage of them, God sees that. And so he hears the cries of the poor. Uh, we are not supposed to treat the poor with favoritism. That's another temptation if there's ditches, right? We shouldn't treat the poor with favoritism either, but we should not take advantage of them. Look at Exodus 23.3. Perhaps it's on the same page that you're on. Uh, we need to begin in verse 2 to, to get the sense of it. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Uh, in other words, just because the person is poor doesn't make them right in their lawsuit, right? We shouldn't take advantage of the poor, but uh, we should also um, act justly. We should, um, we should not be a respecter of persons. It does not mean, uh, uh, yeah, uh, in other words, uh, the poor bear the image of God, we should always honor the image of God in them. James 1.17 reminds us, religion that is pure and undefiled is this, that we would care for the widows and the orphans, that we would care for the other. Uh, and now let's go to that verse that I just read. We need to read the first nine verses in Exodus 23 to learn a little bit more about justice, God's justice. First nine verses. Look at the temptations that it addresses here. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit." If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. In other words, a person who's, who's in your land, but they're not from your land. You shall not oppress them. You shall know the heart of the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So, let's flesh out some of these things. What we see here kind of mirrors Deuteronomy 19.15 where it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. In other words, there is a temptation to pervert justice. There's a temptation when we are wronged to then say, 
I know what this person's motives were and then kind of project them and, and even share this and, and spread it in such a way that it becomes what he says in verse 1, a false report. But also, notice this, when there are a bunch of people right? Think about our own hearts. When there are a bunch of people who are upset and enraged against something that has happened, there's a temptation, something about our human nature to join in with them and be like, oh yeah, 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 me too, right? Even if you don't even know what happened in the situation. I remember a situation when I was in college um, and a, um, a professor had, had made some comments that were inappropriate. Uh, in, in such a way that a, that a young lady was very offended, right, in this Spanish class. And this particular professor was on his third strike anyway. And so the dean of the college had to come in and, and, and spoke with us and asked. And some people had heard some stuff and some people had not heard some stuff. But I remember in that moment when he addressed the whole class, I remember in that moment some folks some folks who may not have really had any knowledge of what happened are wanting to join in and pile on, right? Because it just gets caught up in the moment. We have this sense of justice inside of us that gets twisted, and if we're not careful, we're, we're starting to sign our name to an affidavit of something we don't even have any knowledge about, right? We just got to be careful that we do not pervert justice. Um, we can be led away by what we think is right. We can't even countenance the possibility that we might be missing something. When we're in the middle of these kinds of justice situations, there are a couple of temptations. I've listed three of them. One is this, to only see the situation our way. To not even be able to get out of our shoes to see how someone else might be viewing the situation. Right? That's the first temptation. Secondly is to join in with the crowd and to get carried away right? To maybe join in on a false report. The third uh, temptation would be to lose sight of God's desire, which is reconciliation and restitution. That is always what God desires. God does not desire getting even. God does not desire getting my point across. God desires reconciliation. God is a God. We learned this down at the bottom under the last heading. God is a God of reconciliation. In our conflicts, if our desire is anything other than reconciliation, here's what we're going to be tempted to do. We're going to be tempted to focus on the sin of the other person. We're going to be tempted to, to focus on what they've done instead of what we've done. We're going to be tempted to, to, to not get the, the log out of our own eye, but to focus on the speck in the other person. We might be tempted to downplay our involvement, you know, to talk about, to, to minimize what we've done, to minimize our own sin, and then to maximize the responsibility of the other party, right? This doesn't lead toward reconciliation. This just leads to another conflagration. And then the fourth one is to wander into this blinding anger or resentment. We can no longer see the situation as God sees it. Remember the uh, comments here before the end of the first nine verses about being clear-sighted? One of the things when we walk into the middle of a conflict is it's like walking into the funhouse, right? Where all the mirrors are different. There's smoke and all this stuff. We're not seeing the situation as God sees it. So we need uh, to be clear-sighted. And then the last one is join in with others in a twisted sense of justice and get carried away in the moment. Um, so, I would say, that's where we will leave it.
in chapter 23, verse 9, and we will pick up next week. Would you pray with me? And after I pray, we'll have a time of reflection and response uh, with, with one last song together. And um, I would invite you to uh, ask the Lord to use His Word in the life of your own heart and in the life of our church. Let's pray together. God, I thank You for... Um, I thank you for this time together. As we try to cross the bridge, the, the bridge that sometimes seems, seems long, from where we are in 21st century United States, postmodern era, you know, very affluent with a lot of technology, and we try to get in the shoes or in the sandals of those who, who, lived, uh, who lived before the time of Christ in an agrarian society, um, but, but Lord, what we see through the midst of all of this is that the principles, the principles are the same. You are a God who does not change. The way that you've dealt with your people, we're in a different moment now, but you are still the same God. You are a God of justice. You're a God of concern for the poor. You're a God of reconciliation who desires at the base reconciliation that pictures the reconciliation that we have through Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who understand these things, who believe them deeply, and who let them change the way that we live our lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.